A History of Live Sound with Chris Sam. Back when I started working in live sound, as I was waiting for a a 4am club night to reach its conclusion, I'd often aspire to mix an amazing show, and there was no bigger local band than Oasis. I thought at some point in the future I would meet the mythical engineer who made their gigs so exciting. And over 20 years I met most other engineers in Manchester that you could care to name. But the enigma, the ghost who walks, was Mr Mark Coyle. I only knew snippets of information. He was one of the key ingredients that made Oasis's wall of noise. He recorded their debut album, one of the biggest albums of the decade, selling 8 million copies. He quit at the height of their success, and as this was pre-internet, there is very little about him online. He doesn't do interviews. Hello, how are you doing? On the end of this phone call is Shana McPhail. He has worked in Manchester studios as an engineer and producer all his adult life. He knows everyone in Manchester. And so after mixing one of the biggest bands of the 90s and after recording one of the biggest selling albums of the 90s, there's no trace of him. He's still yeah. around somewhere. But I was like, right, Shona, you've worked in a studio in Manchester for nearly 20 years. You've met Owen Morris, the other half of that team. Yeah. Have you ever come across Mark Coyle? Never. No. It's like a, it's he is a man of mystery. Is the trail dead? The trail was pretty dead. I asked everywhere. I found out that Mark had worked for the Inspiral Carpets as a monitor engineer. So I called Graham Lambert, guitarist for the Inspiral Carpets. So basically, the guy who I'm trying to find is Mark Coyle, who I believe used to work for you. Oh yeah, I know Mark Coyle. Yeah. <laughs> He's a funny, funny guy, yeah. yeah. But, no, but no one knows where he is. Uh, funny enough, I saw him a year ago to the day is the last time I saw him. Um, I'm pretty sure I've got a number for him, but um, he is a quite reclusive, so it's, it's probably best if I, if I send him a message. We were getting somewhere, but I didn't hear anything back for a few weeks. And then, a long shot. Martin Mittler, front of house for the Kooks and the Zootons, dropped into conversation that he'd been in a band with Mark, and he gave me a landline number. He doesn't often answer it, though. And after several days of calls, I finally found myself sitting in Mark Coyle's home studio for only the second interview he has given, ever. There is a lot of swearing, sorry, but this is a man who really loves music. Why or where did you get interested in sound first? Were you at school? Were you were you in a band? Were you um, did you just like going to gigs? Uh, I was into music when I was very young. Um, I think my earliest memories of music could probably be kind of four or five years old. But get actually getting into music was when I went mm. to secondary school and I started going to watch. Uh, all the punk bands. I was a punk rocker. Uh-huh. Um, I was 11, 12 years old and started buying records. Um, 
because I had a Saturday job soccer in, in, in Charlton. I lived in Charlton. Ah. I was born and bred in Charlton. And, um, and I had a Saturday job and I used to spend my wages on, uh, on records every week. So it'd be records and then uh, buying tickets, go and watch the gigs and I'd be watching... Just all the all the punky bands, the Clash and the Buzzcocks and the Fall and all them all them touring bands of the of the kind of seventy seven, seventy eight, that kind of time. Mm-hmm. And um, and I when I seen that, I, I wanted to be in a band. When I got to sixteen, I joined my first band, and that was my route into that world. You know, I was, you know, I'd be sixteen on a join join my first group. At the time when you were going to those gigs, were you conscious of how it sounded, or was it just exciting that no, it was loud? Uh, absolutely no. Was it loud? Uh, no idea. <laughs> no, no idea. I thought it was loud, and I never listened to the sound. I didn't know what the sound was. It was just the experience of being at the gig, and I, I, I always made my way straight to the front of the gig, so I was right in front of the band. So I, I'd never, I'd never have heard a PA. Didn't even know the PA was there. You know, I'd yeah. not, just no idea. They're just mad, crazy gigs. That they, they weren't like seated venues, and that. it was mm-hmm. madness. It was like a fucking riot. You know, every, every gig I went to, there was a fight, and they were ripping up the chairs, <laughs> and it was just insane. You know, so to go there and critique the guy who was mixing, so I didn't even know there was a guy who did the yeah. sound, and just no concepts of it. You know, excellent, you know. Excellent. my my first concepts of of sound and the PA. Was when I joined my first band and I went. I went for my first rehearsal, and I turned up with my guitar, but I didn't have an amp, so I didn't. I didn't even have an electric guitar. I borrowed an electric guitar off a mate of mine, and, I, and we turned up to this guy's house and we, we, we used to rehearse in his front in his front room. And my introduction to PA and sound was the whole band went into an AC30, and that's what I thought it was. Yeah. That's uh, that's how I thought it was done and kind of is really, and uh, yeah. So the vocal went in, the bass went in, the guitars went in, and uh, can say keyboard player in the so all six inputs <laughs> on the AC30, and the volume might control two guitars yeah. or something. So there was no. There's no mixing, but I thought it was amazing. It sounded fucking great to me. Those were the days. Yeah, absolutely. Days. How, yeah, how yeah, many yeah. inputs does your amp have? It's got six. Brilliant. Every, yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah, amazing. That was my introduction into amplified sound of, of any description. Yeah. So I might be guessing slightly here, but I'm I'm assuming that that plan wasn't earning you enough money to live. So did you? I didn't earn any money. No, no. <laughs> so I, I, I was serving my time at Shell as a uh, Shell Chemicals in Carrington as a fitter yeah. at that time as well. So as my bands progressed, I was joining different groups and starting to do some gigs as well, and and you know, sort of becoming aware of. Uh, PA systems or what you call mm. PA systems, they weren't they weren't really just all cobbled together bits and pieces really just to get you through your gig, you know. So at what point did you get to a point where you were earning money mixing sounds? Did did you? Oh, not not for not for years. I had a whole career without earning a penny, without a doubt. I didn't, I didn't earn any money until my mid twenties, and I, and I was doing it. I mean, I was playing playing in bands from so I was at 15 16 um, 
And then when I was 18, me and a friend of mine, we, we set a PA company up. I had no idea what mixing desk was live. And I'd, I'd seen him in the studio because we'd been in the studio, but the desk was, well, say, where we are now, and the desk is there. You didn't see the desk or get involved in the desk. You knew it was there. So I didn't really know what, what it was all about. And we bought some bits of PA. We made some speakers as well. Uh, and we used second-hand homemade speakers that we bought off other people, and we cobbled together mm -hmm. a PA system, and we just started going out and doing gigs. Uh. My mate who we was doing with, he already had a mixer, so he, he, he knew how that worked. I didn't have a fucking clue what it was. I had no idea how it operated, what it, what it was about, what the speakers were about, bass, but I knew what a bass bin was. I'd never appreciated that you had uh, like a, a mid-range uh, speaker and on top of that you had a horn. I'd, I'd, I'd seen it before, but now I was involved. I just never, never experienced it, never plugged them in before. Mm. And we started a PA company and we went out <laughs> and started doing gigs. Not a clue what we were doing. Not a clue. Did people invite you back? <laughs> uh, in the end, in the end, we started getting uh, uh, getting bookings again, but not for not for a while, because it it must have been atrocious, <laughs> it, howling <laughs> feedback and you know in gigs doing people's gigs, you know, and uh, working out very very quickly under great pressure and threats mm. and violence and well you can imagine it's somebody's gig you know the sound is is bad you know somebody's not going to be very happy with this so uh so we learn very very quickly but we still didn't earn any money didn't earn any that <laughs> we, we had that company for maybe about three years or so it was only low level gigs we were playing uh, pubs and the smaller manchester venues mm -hmm. and we at the big time when we played at the international one when we started getting a few gigs there that was the fucking big time, that. That was my image of... Uh, it was beyond us, really. Yeah. But we got, we got a few gigs in there. <laughs> and, we did a few, and we did a few gigs in there. But we never earned any money. Yeah. Didn't earn a fucking penny, you know. Nothing. We'd pay... We didn't have a van, so we had to hire a van. Uh, we didn't have the business now, really, to be charging the proper money. And we'd be going out for you know, 50 pound and the van would cost you 40 quid or so, yeah. you know, you know where it's going after, oh, yeah. there's no money in it, we, we didn't earn any money in, all, in the years we did it, we didn't, didn't mm -hmm. earn a penny, but we, we started learning. Yeah. After that baptism of fire then, yeah. did someone say, oh, that person knows which way to stand behind a mixing desk and um, uh, where, where did you progress from? No, it wasn't kind of quite like that really. So we had our PA and we were starting to learn things and learn things about engineers as well and how engineers make the sound and not the system. You can have mm -hmm. a good system and a shit engineer or you can have a shit system or a fucking great engineer and a great engineer will make a shit PA. It sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it's... It, I kind of learned them, them sort of thing. We got a gig with the Stockholm Monsters and I was just 
blown away. I thought that was the greatest thing because I was a fan and it's in a pub in Hull. So we hired the van, we, we, we borrowed two horns off Ospie. Uh. Each side we had one basement, a homemade basement, one tiny, tiny little 10 inch mid and on the top. That's a yeah. ball or two off us. And we got two horns off there, these little Martin things. And we, we sat our pay up in this pub. No, it's not it's probably as big as this room. We sat our, we sat our pay up, turn it all on and all that. But the horns didn't work. They didn't work. They, he'd, he'd give us two horns that did, we didn't blow them up. As soon as we turned it all on, they just didn't work. So we did that gig. We'd no horns. <laughs> all, all, we had, all we had each side was a, was a bass bin and a little mid. No horns. But their engineer, who I forget who it was, he was brilliant. He just said, that's oh, all right, don't worry about it. <laughs> delighted, we're delighted, relieved, delighted. And he mixed that gig and it, it just sounded great. And I learned something that day. Mm. Really fundamental is that and I didn't appreciate what it was at the time, I don't think. Because I came across that situation a fucking thousand times in the years to come. Yeah. Where you turn up and obviously it doesn't all work. Or oh, this ain't working, that ain't working. Oh, you've got to make the gig happen no matter what is in front of you, you know. Mm. But I didn't appreciate that at the time. I just thought we'd got away with it, you know. But that engineer that day, well, he mixed the gig and he just took it all in his stride. And at the end of the night, when the gig was going on, it just sounded like a gig. These days, equipment is very reliable, generally. Totally. And, <clears throat> yeah, you totally. know, people install things to a high standard. Yes. In my toolbox, I've still got a tube of fast-acting superglue to re-glue subs that have ripped. And doing sort of, like, prick stick and paper to try and... Put yeah. subs back together uh, again uh, in dodgy any, venues. Any which way, I mean, something I learned very, very, very soon as well when I, when I started going out and working as an engineer for, like, uh, the different PA companies in Manchester was that I always had my toolkit. Always had a soldering iron. Always had some uh, loose jacks and uh, just bits, a little toolbox, cutters, pair of pliers, a few screwdrivers, fuses, always always carried them i learned that very quickly as well because never you never used to have anything like that didn't have the concept that something might go wrong you so yeah. you've got to be able to fix things like fucking sharpish as well you know mm. especially when there's you know if you got if you got a full venue or something you know then you, 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 you the show's got to happen you know yeah it's, it's the same when i was roadie and not injured i've done all kind of uh jobs in, in that in that industry and uh, when I was a roadie it was exactly the same, you know. It's just things fucking breaking left, right and centre all all the time, you know. You'd rarely have a quiet gig where nothing broke. I was speaking to the guy who mixed Toto in in America and he was saying he basically got most of his jobs because he was the only person who had a soldering iron with him all the time. Yeah, sure. I can, I can, I can, well, I can well understand that, yeah. I can well understand that, and I'm sure it got me a few jobs, you know, or that appearance that you yeah. knew. You you're, know, you're, you're, you're the person who'll make sure something's going to go going. wrong. There's your man who's going to get this gig going yeah. again, you know. Many times I've been mixing and soldiering at the same time. It, it, <laughs> absolutely. 
So what, what was the next step from now having your basic competences and your, and your road to Damascus revelations about how it's as important to have the engineer more so than the equipment in a way? Yeah, I, I, I think definitely. I think that is a, a truism. I don't know how that might be today. I don't know because I'm not familiar with the, the systems of today or you know digital mixers and all this kind of thing. I've not, I've not mixed in a long time now, really. Um, live, I've not done a gig in you know over 15 years or something. Mm-hmm. It's quite a long time since it, since I, I'm just stuck in my studio these days. But I guess in them days, the next stage for me was appreciating you know what what different pa systems sounded like and who had this system or who had Mm. that system most systems in in them days uh kind of talking the like the mid 80s a lot of systems them days were, were still homemade just bodged together pa systems or or you know knackered stuff from the early 70s and you know, all Martin systems that Oz had a his Martin system we'll talk about Oz in a bit but he, he had a Martin system uh, that was just gobsmacking you know just the bollocks the best thing I'd ever heard I mean I never heard anything like it you know <laughs> incredible stuff but uh, obviously quite old technology at, mm. uh, at the same time I mean they were the the cream of uh, certainly of Manchester I they were right at the very top of the tree. Posh as fuck. They, they were just right at the top of the tree. And I worked for all the companies <laughs> that, were, <laughs> that weren't OSPA. Eventually, I worked for OSPA, yeah. but, but initially, I was kind of foraging my way, A, with my own PA system, uh, with, with my mate. And when that split up, then I started freelancing for all the other companies and then mm. got ex- got exposed to their PAs and, and you know, one night I'd be working with one system and then the next night I'd be working with another system and then the next night I'd be working for another company. You're taking your best bits of knowledge there from was, one. There was, how many was there? There was uh, Oz, I mean, that company, <coughs> just fabulous, fantastic. Man, it's like going to the army or something. It's like it's like doing national service or something. They were really clever, great engineers, all three of them. Great equipment, just cool as you like. Hard partying, hard working. So to work with them, absolute privilege, absolutely amazing. And then underneath that were all the the other straggling companies who were all doing good business. They were all out. They were, I don't know what the gigs are like these days, but they, they were out every day. You know, you, they could be out uh, being rented every single day. And there was um, Paul Tandy. I uh, know that name. Concert, uh, right. Concert Systems. Systems. Now, yes. they're still going as a shop, I think. Do they sell PAs? Or I, think, I don't know what he gravitated yeah. into. But he started off. He was a PA system and he had a van full of Ildens. So I'd be going out with him and there'd just be me and him. So have you ever seen a hillbin? No. Right, as big as this fucking house. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're just these, these enormous boxes, really, really stupidly heavy. They're like, a, even in my memory, they're not even a four-man lift. They're like a six, six-man six lift or something. They're a really big, heavy box. Mm. So but it was just me and him. 
Oh. <laughs> now I went downstairs and uh, upstairs and how oh, we got that gear in. Oh, goodness me. I couldn't do, I couldn't do it now. So you're loading into a, a, a gig, you go somewhere, Leeds or something, and you turn up and gigs downstairs like that. Oh, fuck. I'm going to go, how do we do this? And he said, I'll show you how we do this. And he tips it on his side and just push it down the stairs. <laughs> I was like, ah, fucking hell, my cheeks scale like that. Un- unbelievable stuff. Yeah. Unbelievable. Chuck it down the stairs and we worry about getting it out. Tonight. That's not what you want to hear. Nightmares, nightmares. Hard graft. But in it goes anyway. So he, he, yeah. he, had, a, he had a hill system. Um, and he'd put uh, in a little club, he'd, he'd put one aside. He'd get one bin aside, plug it in with one wire. It's really quick to put it to put it up, mm. really, really quick. And I, I always thought it sounded okay. Um, but, I mean, I was very inexperienced. I don't know whether I think they sound all right today, I wouldn't be able to tell you. But at the time, I, they had a bit of a bad reputation, Hill. But mm. they did Live Aid. They had three hundred boxes at Live Aid or something. So they, yeah. it was a it was yeah. a big system at that time. But yeah, he, he had his hill bins and hill mixers. They they made their own mixers that went with the PA as uh-huh. well. Amazing stuff. Very innovative, really. So there was him, and then I'd go out with Eastwood Audio. Not not come across them. Right, Eastwood so. Audio. They had quite a big system, and. It was, they bought their system off Harry DeMack. Know that name? No. you got to do some research. I've got to do some research on Harry DeMack, what a fucking character. (laughs) What an absolute fucking loony. Top fucking guy. But not the greatest of reputations. (laughs) Uh, Sound-wise and stuff like that. But his band couldn't have been that bad because his band was... Echo and the Echo. Man. That was his act. That was his job. So it couldn't have been that shit. That was one of his big jobs. They all had one big band or two relatively big bands, and they kind of uh, they earned good money off them. But yeah. then they did thousands of other gigs. But Ari DeMac, PSE, I think his company was called, and it was like it, that PA. It was like homemade. It wasn't. It wasn't like going out and buying Martin or something. It was all old made stuff, <laughs> and it looked a bit old for you. It didn't really sound the greatest. So Eastwood Audio bought Harry's or a, a, a section of Harry's yeah. PA, and and out they went doing the same gigs that we that we were all doing. All you know the clubs and the yeah. universities and uh, getting little bits of tours and stuff. So I've seen that PA as well, and it was a bit cobbled together, but the two guys who run it were great. They were they were really cool. And I ended up working with one of them. We did the Stone Roses together in the late 80s when they were breaking. We were the engineers. So because I'd worked and I'd met him through Eastwood Audio, mm. we ended up doing the roses you uh, see so. Oh, so you got a lot of contacts from having so yeah so the, the contact the contacts kind of grew from working with the different companies who else was there I used to work for strawberry rentals which was, was that connected the strawberry to the studio, studio. there yeah. the pa system as well which oh, right. was a 10 cc's pa system so then they used to go out they used to hire that out 
they didn't do rock and roll stuff like the other PA companies. Though. They, they did, uh, what did I used to go out doing with them? Oh, fucking hell. There you go. Joe Longform. That was, <laughs> that was their gig. Brilliant. So me and the lad from Strawberry, we used to go out and do little tours of, of that and do like the, um, the cabaret scene. Weird, weird as fuck. Chicken in the basket, venues. And me and Dave... <laughs> me, and, me and Dave scruffy as fuck in some cabaret and I was spliffing you know, <laughs> Just like, you, all you've got to do is set it up. You don't, you have to, yeah. you don't mix it involved. Yeah. Cause, is cause, the mic on? Brilliant. The, guy, the guy's got his own engineer. Joe, uh, Joe's engineer was his boyfriend. Sweet, sweet. So we just set it up and, you know, just kind of hung out while they, they did the gig. We just enjoyed some chicken in a basket. And, you know, just look at all the weird activity going, going on around them. Gigs are strange scene, you know. So there was Strawberry used to do that. Then there was another, another one that I worked for. And he was... Uh, his company was called Power Assistance. <laughs> Power Assistance. This is another Manchester PA at the time, in the kind of mid to late 80s. Power Assistance. And his name, the guy's name was Reg. And he made his own PA. I, felt, I always felt a bit sorry for him because people kind of looked down the nose at him a bit. He was an odd character. But he was a diamond. He was dead honest, mm. and he was dead straight. And he loved his PA. He could talk about it all day and all night. And he made it himself. Base bins. He made his mid tops. He called them because it was all in one. It was all in one box. Revolution, you know. I was like, oh, fucking hell, all in one box. <laughs> Unbelievable. And he made it himself. And he cobbled all this stuff together. That was. Uh, kind of quite low quality stuff really mm. but there's one thing about him is that everything worked and I thought that was I thought that was pretty cool if something blew up he fixed it straight away and I, that always impressed me he didn't have the greatest gear but he got loads of gigs mm. and I used to go out and do loads of gigs with him is the consistency that it were, it really was yeah it was consistent but then you get used to the sound of his PA and you get used to it and you go oh that's what Reggie's PA sounds like and it wasn't actually shit it just wasn't very hi-fi if you like yeah uh, but yeah one thing about Reg and if you're listening Reg good on you because everything worked <laughs> amazing and, and a lot of PA companies I worked for at that time, yeah, that wasn't the case. Yeah. If something blow up, they'd, they'd take gear out that wasn't working or half working, uh, I'd get away with it, you know. Yeah. But, yeah, I'll give it Reg. It, it, if something blew up, he replaced it straight away and it's everything that, worked. That thing, well, most channels on the amp are working, so... Uh. Yeah, that, that, that kind of thing. And sometimes, well, you know, as the years progressed, I mean, that, you know, is, is something you come across all the time then and it's mm. like, fucking hell... What's all this tape all over the mixer? Oh, look, well, we've got that tape there because that section doesn't work and, you know, all, all this kind of but, thing. And yeah, and that's when you've got to deal with it, yeah. you know. That, that is one difference with digital mixing desks, I think, because, you know, you've maybe only got 12 or 16 faders, yeah. but you can go between different pages. Yeah, sure, yeah. You've got to have all 16 working, mm. so you can't get away with... Yeah. Things that you used to get away with. Sure thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is a good 
thing. So. Yeah, yeah, of course, <laughs> of course it is. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. But um, but yeah, they, they were some of the they were some of the companies I worked for. Wigwam was another one I worked for, and they were a big company. They were into sales, mm. and they didn't do rock and roll. Wigwam, uh. the new rock and roll, they did. God is what they did. They uh, they were a Christian church. It's what yeah. Wigwam was. And they did, they did a lot of uh, Christian events, you know. Uh, they did a little bit of highbrow rock music, like um, Chris Rear was one of theirs. Uh, so, they, you know, they're not doing... Yeah. They're not doing dirty little, you know... The- drugged up, dr- dr- yeah. drunken bands. They, they, they were doing nice gigs, and they had a nice PA to go with it, which was the Mayor uh, MSL3 big wedge-shaped things yeah. and that they had a system of that and uh and they were really yeah they weren't they weren't off the street them people they were very highbrow and they were business orientated uh but they looked after me really well uh, they never let me engineer or oh, I, I actually tell a lie i did do a few very low level engineering gigs for them but they wouldn't let me near anything technical <laughs> it was mostly for them it was mostly um driving loading and unloading and some rigging no speaking to the clients no <laughs> no way were you involved in any way with their clients that was but they were lovely lovely people yeah. and when i worked for them they looked after me exceptionally well you know but they were they were a posh company they had <laughs> like they had a new van you know, or not just one, they had a fleet of vans, you know, they, wow. they were but all brand new, all leased gear and all that, and they were, they were into the business size, where, where if you work for anyone else, you know, they've, they've got a van from 1965 or something that chugs along the road, or clouds of smoke and all yeah. that, that, that was the reality of the the real companies that yeah. I work for. I guess, I guess they were making real money out of their gigs as well. Sure yeah. thing they were, yeah, very wealthy, yeah, yeah without a doubt. Yeah. But yeah, I, I got to know them because we hired extra gear. Sometimes we'd have to go to them if we needed extra bass bins or something. I couldn't get them off far, so we couldn't get them from somewhere else. We'd have to go to Wigwam for them. So we got, we got, we got to know them. Funnily enough, they, they started doing a bit of rock and roll and they put the PA system in for the Stone Roses at Blackpool Empress Ballroom in uh, 1989. And it was a big thing for them. They, yeah. They were a bit... They, they were a bit scared they, they might not get it back. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what they were kind of expecting, but they didn't do a lot of that work at that time, you know. I think they were a bit giggly about it. I remember as the PA was coming in that day, me and Eastie, he who was Eastwood Audio. Me and Eastwood, we obviously were there from the loading and all that, watching it all come in and supervising it all. And as the flight cases were coming in, your flight case would have white gaffer on it and it'd be, what's inside yeah. is, is written on the top. And it had things like acid and, uh, and you know, and drugs and, th- you know, they were starting to laugh, you know, I mean, all these, all these things are just like, <laughs> unbelievable, unbelievable. Oh, but yeah, but they 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 did the PA for that gig. Actually, it was good on them, you know. 
with the bouncy floor as well. Did, yeah, did, yeah, what, yeah. What, what did you do with that though? Did you just watch this PA just waving oh, at the, you? The, 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 the PA just move around. The Ritz was another one in Manchester where mm. you had to tie the PA up in there, or, or, otherwise it'd come down, you know. Did it with Oz on a number of occasions, and the way his PA was configured in that room, so it's quite, it's quite tall, really. There was never a lot of room to get your PA in the Ritz, and not, not a lot of because the PAs were big in them days. Yeah. To, today they're very compact and small, but in them days they were they were just fucking enormous. And he he used to strap his together with them big ratchet straps and. You know, and and even though they just moved together, then instead, <laughs> instead of it all falling apart like a lot of Lego or something, and the whole thing had been moving like this, you know, health and safety didn't really exist in them <laughs> in them days, you know. But yeah, that's kind of the the basis of the of the companies that I was working mm. for, and I don't know, you know, eighty five, eighty six, and and then I kind of went up a few notches in the respect that I started getting little bits of work off. Ospia can start getting little little bits of work off them, and that changed my life from that moment on. Because I seen how it, how it should be done. Yeah, I started to see how it should be how things should be done. So I started working for them, uh, just loading the truck, and unloading the truck, and pushing boxes around. And that was all you were allowed to do. Mm-hmm. Not allowed to do anything else. And then that progressed to. Uh, wiring things up, wiring the PA, wiring like wiring the monitors. You're gaining their trust. And, uh, that was you know <laughs> better micing up stuff, but learning. There's some stuff I'd, I'd done hundreds of times before, like micing up, but there's micing up and there's micing up, mm. and I'd, I'd just started to learn these things, things that I thought I already knew a little bit about. I knew fuck all. I knew nothing. I'd been doing it a number of years, but really I was starting again because I'd just met the dons of the PA world. And it was the greatest thing. Working-wise, they were the greatest days because they did all the bands. that I I was fans of all the bands they were doing. Mm. You know, I was a big New Order fan and... That's you know, Cabaret Voltaire and The Fall yeah. and all this. I was just like, oh man, this, this, this is where, is everyone you this is to where be. I want to, this is where I want to be, you know. Yeah. And I always wanted to be in, in the, you know, in that kind of industry, either playing gigs or after, after I'd, I'd been, been in bands and that, and I started getting into the PA side and I was dead happy to be there as well because you're right, you're right in the heart of it, you know, right in the heart of that gig and it's just the greatest thing. Mm. I was so excited. So I started doing a few little gigs with Oz and then that developed into a few little tours and it took a little bit of time, you know. Yeah. I, I wasn't ready to mix for them for quite some fucking time, it's got to be said. Raz said to me one day, now they, they might have been thinking in respect of maybe he can do the support band or something. So one day Oz says to me, explain to me what a gain pot is. Now, I couldn't articulate it. I've been using mixers and all that. Yeah. But somebody asked me a direct question about what exactly that knob does what does that 
particular section of the mixer do. I could, just couldn't get the words out. I couldn't really articulate exactly. And he just said, you're not ready. <laughs> <laughs> and he was absolutely fucking spot on. What he was saying was, you ain't getting on my fucking mixer. Yeah. Well, it's his reputation as well with his name uh, on the box. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, they were fucking amazing for that. They, they were so professional. Amazing sound, you know. Everybody wanted to rent that PA. Yeah. And rent. It wasn't just the PA. You're renting them as well. And they were like a rock band all on their own. I remember Graham Lambert's from Inspired oh, Carpets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he said, he said, yeah, if, if you're a band in Manchester, yeah, you might get you know an engineer or a PA but when you made it you got Oz Oz PA you got Oz PA to do it because that was when you knew that you were at the top yeah yeah you knew you were your you knew your gig every night was going to be amazing Mm. and if it wasn't very good it was your fault not the PAs because the PA would would be mint well looked after their bands were well looked after sound wise Mm. well well catered for down to the finest of details, the incredible stuff. Yeah, and I, so I spent a lot of time just sat, you know, obviously not, not really doing the gigs, wiring, lifting, filling trucks, emptying trucks, wiring, more wiring, it's just sitting and watching them work and watch the way they work. They're a military operation, mm. military stuff, you know, very privileged to work with them because not a lot of people work for that company. Uh-huh. But I was one of them. I worked for them, and um, it makes me feel great that I worked for that company. Yeah. And there's not a lot of people. I mean, these days, I guess you'd say OSPA, and nobody know what you're fucking talking about. But in them days, that was heavyweight stuff, man. Yeah. I was right at the top of the game. That's why I'm, I want to speak to Diane. Oh, because, sure thing. He must do. Yeah, yeah. Because everyone I've spoken to is like. Oh, and did you know about Oz? Yeah. Without fail, anyone in the Northwest mentions Oz. Right, good. Um, and they're like, that that was what they, everyone aspired yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They deserve it. That, that company deserved it. But everybody else, there was a place for everybody to... Everybody worked. They had their you place in the market. The, the, the place was in the market for them, you know. And there was plenty of gigs that Oz couldn't do. Because mm. they were out doing other things, so that means the next one down. You know, yeah. there, there was pl- there was plenty of gigs and plenty of work to go around. We'd we'd work seven nights a week, in them days. You know, seven nights a wow. week without doubt. It wasn't mixing; it was just loading in. You do, yeah. you do you do you do the getting and the get out. Uh, the internationals, something they always had crew, four or six crew. You know, and you'd sometimes you'd be doing that, and you wouldn't be going out installing PAs or working for PA companies. You're just working for the club. Uh, with people like Slim and all that. Have you heard of him? Nice, Slim's, Slim's a new one on me. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> you know. Is he still alive? I don't know. I don't know. What did he? Uh... King of the Road is Slim. He come from the workshop of Factory Records, and he was a big fucking, he's a big fat fucker. And he was cool as fuck. He was amazing, but he was just you know roadying. Uh, loading in, loading out, all this kind of thing, work for New Order, all that kind of thing, but uh, top fucking guy, Slim. Yeah, ask, ask, uh, ask people about Slim. I shall. He's probably shall. still around, because he's seen it all. He's seen all that scene, Slim, the 70s and the 80s, he's seen it all. 
Yeah, really nice guy. But hard, yeah. hard as fuck as I don't fuck about with him. But he's, he's slotted into it, or he fitted in, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Everybody yeah. knew him. He's a good guy. So kind of worked for them companies and worked all the, all them clubs in Manchester. And it, so it sounds like most of them you were taking PA in when you needed it. Did anywhere have in-house PA or was it all... Didn't exist. ...an empty hall? House PAs didn't exist. Ah. Not in my experience. All the house PAs that were there um, uh, were they're just unusable. No, nobody used them. Uh. Everybody hired. Like the international clubs didn't have house PA. There's no speakers in house in there. Yeah. You, but you you brought your own in. Even the little clubs, you know, Cloud Nine and all them little places that didn't have a PA. Was a good business to be in then in that case. Yeah, it yeah. definitely. Well, that's what I mean. There was there was, there was plenty of gigs out because uh, you know you need you needed a PA like the university. You go and play the uni bar or something. Mm. There's no PA there. You got to bring your own. You know, and that's all over the country. It's not just Manchester. Everywhere was pretty much the same. Yeah, you go and do a gig at that level. You're not playing the pub now. We're playing yeah. the one above that, where it's small clubs and stuff like that. It's not, not, not might, you know. Just trying to think of who might have had a PA in house, and I can't think of one. Oh no, I can think of one. The gallery. I don't. Oh, these, the gallery. Names. Look at that venue. Amazing, great. It ran for years. The gallery, just down from the uh, free trade hall. Everyone played there, and they had an in-house PA actually. God knows what that was. Probably homemade again. Mm. Working for all the different companies, you see loads of different PA systems. Even just loading and unloading trucks, you see somebody's PA who's come up from London and it's like, that's how they got and all that. Is that any good, this, you know? And and you you kind of meet all the different crews because every PA's got a crew. Uh, you know, the coming a little, yeah. coming a little gang. Oz was the same, and in some respects, that you know, we, we became that with, with Oz, where it was a, a tight knit little crew, and the, that's that's who worked you, for you that company. With the gear. That's it. Yeah. You went everywhere, you did, and you started doing the tours of them, and and you see them coming out like the international too. Uh, we did did a lot of work in that in that building, international one as well. And you see all, all manner of PA companies turning up there to do the gig, you know, dead interesting stuff. With with varying degrees of success. I yeah, think. sure thing. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Some you know some were amazing, and some were just like run of the mill homemade stuff. You know, mm. like like a couple of times a year, the international two would do like a festival of sound systems. Uh, it's all like the reggae sound systems are coming from all over the country. And did set them up. There might be like you know six or eight PA systems in the room at the same time. They set them up around the outside. There'd be, there'd be one on the stage, then there'd be a couple on this this side, and a couple on this side of the hall, and a couple more down this end. And it's all these black geezers who you know all, all the reggae sound system everywhere. Yeah. Guys, man, heavy fucking heavy guys, and they come in with their system and they have a big face off all the different PA systems. <laughs> What a night! That what, what a night! What an eye opener! Oh. Just what a great night out that was! And this period go and they'd be doing this proper heavy, heavy dub coming out. The racket coming out of them PA systems, unbelievable. Bass bins, ten foot tall. You know all this mad, yeah. mad stuff you've never seen in your life. And they built it all themselves. You know. I, I was talking to a guy who used to work in that scene. He used to like, oh really? Illegal, right. illegal raves. And and he he came Good from stuff, he came man. from the reggae sound system, but then he got oh into really right right, and he said 
It's amazing because they'd plug in a sub and they'd run a piece of like bell wire across the floor with a bit of tape on it to power the other sub. And you'd be like, how are you getting that noise out of that sub? And they'd be like, well, I don't know. We've plugged it in with a wire. And it'd be like this little strands of copper. Yeah. And on the other end of it would be like a 75-watt amp. Mm. And you'd be like, none of this makes any sense. Yeah, but exactly. it sounds great. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. See them guys operating and just they're just fixing it all the time. It's completely mm. homemade. But when it was on, I was just surprised. The building was still stood at the end of the night because the racket and the thump that come out of them basements is just... Gobsmacking, you wouldn't believe it, you know, and it'd be like, how the fuck they do that? And uh, you know, they just all fucking sat around, chugging away on big fucking spliffs and just <laughs> off their heads, playing mad fucking bonkers drug music, you know, good stuff, man, good stuff. That was always oh. a good night, that. Mm. That was a scramble to work on them gigs, you know, uh-huh, and uh-huh. no white faces in that building. Pure, it was pure root stuff, that, you yeah. know, heavyweight stuff. Amazing. Yeah, what a racket they made. And then they'd be facing off like they'd be playing each other, one would be playing, <laughs> or the other one would be playing at the same time. The best thing I ever heard. Oh. Possibly, yeah, possibly. <laughs> in, utterly insane, and they'd just march in and they would take over. They'd take over that club. Yeah. And that is how Ospia used to do it as well. Uh-huh. working for them we come in we fucking take over take over nobody tell you nothing you put the things where you want to put them and you are in charge it's your gig you're in charge but I guess if there was that variable quality throughout the country in terms of you know you're walking into an empty room each night and trying to make it sound good mm. it must have been really important to have your own PA and your own engineer. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the bands really appreciate that, and, yeah. they, and they needed it because all the bands they come through, through all the, all the ranks have been in little rehearsal rooms to doing little pubs to playing the bigger pubs to playing the smaller clubs to playing the bigger clubs, and all of a sudden there's money involved and the record companies and blah blah, and there's budgets thrown at it. You need a good PA system to get to carry them gigs for you. you know? mm. Is that where you started working for bands? Or we, we yes, yeah, yeah. That's that's when it started. I started picking up a, a few of my own groups that I worked for, mm. uh, and I, I kind of didn't own the PA anymore. I was just working purely for for the Mancunian companies, all very intensely working class, hard grafters. Man, they all worked really hard. Mm-hmm. You know, that was fucking hard work all the time, every day. It was hard work. And it was just uh, so rewarding, you know. And you get get to see all your favourite groups. And started, at that point, getting paid. Uh, it was the first time I got paid work, working for other people. When I worked for myself, didn't earn a fucking penny. I don't know how I survived. I used to have little jobs on the side. I, I worked for a number of years in the uh, Canadian charcoal plate in sale. Flipping burgers. Uh, like had to do that. I'll go back on the spanners for a few weeks or something just to get just to get some money. Never earned any money off rock and roll. I just did it because I knew it made sense. That's where I wanted to be and I didn't know how it was going to work out. But I didn't give a fuck because when I was doing them gigs, even if it was just loading a truck, that is what I wanted. 
Yeah. But I didn't know how to do it or anything, you know. I did, just didn't know. But I knew that's, that once I got a little taste of that, it's just like, this is the mm. fucking life, man. This is, what, <laughs> this is where it's all about. And, and to be in that environment, man. Well, it's you know, being able to hear music you love loud every day. That was good. <laughs> and yeah, and hear it all. You know, I mean, I like a loud gig, you know. And, I, and I, the, all the gigs that I, that I used to go and watch when I was young, you know, they were mostly kind of feisty, punky, guitar-y affairs. And you know, I wanted it to be a bit, a bit mad and a bit raucous, you know. And we'll hear how mad and raucous it was in the next episode. A History of Life Sound is presented by me, Chris Snow, executive producer at Spare Women, and is a bandwidth production.